Welcome back to Christ and Cthulhu. As always, I am your host, C.L. Fuquay, and today, by listener request, we will be covering the captivating Lovecraft short story, Pikmin's Model. After completion of The Other Gods, I had been mulling over what I was going to cover next. Should I start a new multi-part series on a lengthy Lovecraft story and keep to pattern? Or tackle another shorter work in the hopes of an earlier release? This was on my mind when I received a message from a follower on the Christ and Cthulhu Instagram page inquiring if I might consider covering Pikmin's model, as it was one of his personal favorites and had some definite tie-ins with the overall theme of this podcast. You're in luck, Steve L., because I too appreciate this story immensely and what it says about beauty and horror, authenticity and artificiality. This one's a bit shorter, but longer than the other gods, so while I won't do a full read-through, I will read out significant portions of the story. Because the power behind this tale, like many of Lovecraft's works, comes not from twist endings or conventional scares, but from the atmosphere he's able to establish, and the uneasy messages which slither just below the surface of what is presented. Let's get started with a little background on this one. The story takes place in Boston, and is told by way of the audience as a third-person observer-slash-listener. We are effectively the character Elliot, who is listening to this mad tale told about Richard Pickman by the character Thurber. Prior to the start of the story, Pickman had gone missing, and authorities hadn't had any success on locating him or on finding any leads. Thurber knows of a secret art studio of Pickman's, that would be a good place to begin searching but doesn't bother telling them because he's so shaken by the events that took place when Pikmin had taken him on a tour there. You see, Pikmin is an artist of considerable renown in the Boston area, but his exploits on canvas, though technically impressive, had managed to get him kicked out of the Boston Art Club. But let's back it up just a bit to where Thurber starts. He is explaining to Elliot that he has a newfound phobia of subways, and it's why the two of them had to taxi to their destination. Pikmin is the reason for this new phobia, and he explains that prior to his disappearance, he, like many other of the artists in the Boston Club, had severed ties with Pikmin. But he explains he did not do it for the same petty reasons as others, like Dr. Reed or Joe Minot. They did it because they did not care for his morbid art and the dark, disturbing images he painted. Thurber maintains that Pikmin was so immensely talented he felt honored to have known him despite cutting ties. He even makes the bold claim that Boston never had a greater painter than Richard Upton Pikmin. He then goes on to admire aloud the skill of Pikmin to squeeze every available bit of tension and fear from a person through his art. He compares him to well-known real-world artists such as Henry Fuseli, Gustave Doré, and Francisco de Goya and maintains that Pikmin is their superior. He remarks that they must both have a drink before he can continue. Throughout the story, Thurber will continually take more drinks of whatever alcohol they're consuming, which helps to establish the psychological toll that the events of the ensuing tale have taken on his mind. Thurber goes on to recall the time Pikmin unveiled his painting called Ghoul Feeding, and that even though no one would exhibit it, and the Museum of Fine Arts wouldn't take it as a gift, his own admiration for Pikmin's ability soared. He, he says he began to call on Pikmin quite often after that since he was working on a monograph on weird art. It may even have been Pikmin's art which put the idea into his head, he remarks. 
He says he became a devotee of sorts and would listen for hours as Pickman waxed eloquent on philosophy and art theories which he says were wild enough to get him committed to an asylum. He says as his loyalty grew for Pickman simultaneously with others distancing themselves from him, it pushed Pickman to become more confidential with Thurber and share things he would not otherwise. Most important of all is that he had worked stronger than anything he had presented to the Boston Art Club or Museum and would show it to Thurber if he could keep his mouth shut. From here, Pickman, or rather Lovecraft, speaking through Pickman, begins his illuminating rant. You know, he said, there are things that won't do for Newberry Street, things that are out of place here and that can't be conceived here anyhow. It's my business to catch the overtones of the soul and you won't find those in a parvenu set of artificial streets on made land. Back Bay isn't Boston. It isn't anything yet, because it's had no time to pick up memories and attract local spirits. If there are any ghosts here, they're the tame ghosts of a salt marsh and a shallow cove. And I want human ghosts, the ghosts of beings highly organized enough to have looked on hell and known the meaning of what they saw. The place for an artist to live is in the North End. If any esthete were sincere, he'd put up with the slums for the sake of the mass traditions. God, man, don't you realize that places like that weren't merely made, but actually grew? Generation after generation lived and felt and died there, and in days when people weren't afraid to live and feel and die. Don't you know there was a mill on Copps Hill in 1632, and that half the present streets were laid out by 1650? I can show you houses that have stood two centuries and a half and more. Houses that have witnessed what would make a modern house crumble into powder. What do moderns know of life and the forces behind it? You call the Salem witchcraft a delusion, but I'll wager my four times great-grandmother could have told you things. They hanged her on Gallows Hill, with Cotton Mather looking sanctimoniously on. Mather, damn him, was afraid somebody might succeed in kicking free of this accursed cage of monotony. I wish someone had laid a spell on him or sucked his blood in the night. I can show you a house he lived in, and I can show you another one he was afraid to enter in spite of all his fine, bold talk. He knew things he didn't dare put into that stupid magnalia or that puerile wonders of the invisible world. Look here, do you know the whole North End once had a set of tunnels that kept certain people in touch with each other's houses and the burying ground and the sea? Let them prosecute and persecute above ground. Things went on every day that they couldn't reach, and voices laughed at night that they couldn't place. Why, man, out of ten surviving houses built before 1700, and not moved since I'll wager that in eight, I can show you something queer in the cellar. There's hardly a month that you don't read of workmen finding bricked up arches and wells, leading nowhere in this or that old place as it comes down. You should see one near Henchman Street from the elevated last year. There were witches in what their spells summoned, pirates in what they brought in from sea, smugglers, privateers, and I tell you, people knew how to live and how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old times. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise man could know, fah. And to think of today in contrast with such pale pink brains and even a club of supposed artists gets shudders and convulsions if a picture goes beyond the feelings of a Beacon Street's tea table. The only saving grace of the present is that it's too damn stupid to question the past very closely. What do maps and records and guidebooks really tell of the North End? Bah! At a guess I'll guarantee to lead you to 30 or 40 alleys and networks of alleys north of Prince Street that aren't suspected by 10 living beings outside of the foreigners that swarm them. 
And what do those Dagos know of their meaning? No, Thurber. These ancient places are dreaming gorgeously and overflowing with wonder and terror and escapes from the commonplace. And yet there's not a living soul to understand or profit by them. Or rather, there's only one living soul. I haven't been digging around in the past for nothing. See here, you're interested in this sort of thing. What if I told you I've got another studio up there, where I can catch the night spirit of antique horror and paint things that I couldn't even think of in Newberry Street? Naturally, I don't tell those cursed old maids at the club with Reed, damn him, whispering even as it is that I'm a sort of monster bound down in the toboggan of reverse evolution. Yes, Thurber, I decided long ago that one must paint terror as well as beauty from life. So I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives. After this extended rant from Pikmin, Thurber all but runs to the nearest cab to see what Pikmin has in his private collection. They began their journey to his private studio. Let's let Thurber tell his part of it. We changed to the elevated at the South Station and at about 12 o'clock midnight had climbed down the steps at Battery Street and struck along the old waterfront past Constitution Wharf. I didn't keep track of the cross streets and can't tell you yet which it was we turned up, but I know it wasn't Greenlow Lane. When we did turn, it was to climb through the deserted length of the oldest and dirtiest alley I ever saw in my life. With crumbling looking gambles, broken small pane windows and archaic chimneys that stood out half disintegrated against the moonlight sky. I don't believe there were three houses in sight that hadn't been standing in Cotton Mather's time. Certainly I glimpsed at least two with an overhang. And once I thought I saw a peaked roof line of the almost forgotten pre-gambrel type. Though antiquarians tell us that there are none left in Boston. After this description, Thurber goes on to describe the worm-eaten door that looked antediluvian in his words. When they enter the ancient building, he goes on to say the paintings he would, he would not show at Newbury Street and the Boston Art Club were adorning the walls, and he was shocked at what he saw. He notes to us as Elliot that the horror wasn't in the alienage of landscapes because they seemed to be perfectly common. Old churchyards, deep woods, cliffs by the sea, he even recognizes one, Copse Hill burying, burying Ground, which wasn't very far from where Thurber and Elliot were currently engaged in conversation. The horror, he says, is in the demoniac portraiture. The creatures described were vaguely humanoid to differing degrees, canine-like faces. They stood hunched over with a kind of rubberiness to their overall texture. The creatures were featured in all the artwork as feeding on unmentionable things, sitting over sleeping humans gathered around in clusters. Thurber tells Elliot that it was the absolutely dreadful faces of the creatures and how alive they were. He feels as if they were really alive. Pikmin had managed, through some witchery, to bring them to life with his paint and brush. Thurber goes on to describe one painting in particular. There was this one thing called the lesson. Heaven pity me that I ever saw it. Listen, can you fancy a squatting circle of nameless dog-like things in a churchyard teaching a small child how to feed like themselves? The price of a changeling, I suppose. You know the old myth about how the weird people leave their spawn in cradles in exchange for the human babes they steal. Pikmin was showing what happens to those stolen babes and how they grow up. And then I began to see a hideous relationship in the faces of the human and non-human figures. He was, in all his gradations of morbidity, between the frankly non-human and the de degradedly human, establishing a sardonic linkage in evolution. The dog things were developed from mortals, 
and no sooner had I wondered what he made of their own young, as left with mankind in the form of changelings, than my eye caught a picture embodying that very thought. It was that of an ancient Puritan interior, a heavily beamed room with lattice windows, a settle and clumsy 17th century furniture, with the family sitting about while the father read from the scriptures. Every face but one showed nobility and reverence, but that one reflected the mockery of the pit. It was that of a young man in years, and no doubt belonged to a supposed son of that pious father, but in essence it was the kin of the unclean things. It was their changeling, and in a spirit of supreme irony, Pickman had given the features a very perceptible resemblance to his own. After this description, Pickman invites Thurber to see his gallery of modern studies, and from these paintings he becomes thoroughly terrified. He comments that it's one thing to see the creatures in their menacing activities in an ancient setting, but quite another to see them in his own present day. There's scenes of many creatures attacking a derailed subway car, feasting on the people, and others where they are simply hiding in shadowed corners of cellars, waiting to ambush unsuspecting folks coming down the stairs. He says there's one in particular that shocked him more than all the rest. A scene in an unknown vault, where scores of the beasts crowded about one who held a well-known Boston guidebook and was evidently reading aloud. All were pointing to a certain passage, and every face seemed so distorted with epileptic and reverberant laughter that I almost thought I heard the fiendish echoes. The title of the picture was Holmes, Lowell, and Longfellow Lie Buried in Mount Auburn. This painting is very illuminating on the discussion for the end of the story, so I'll wait to explain what the title is referring to. Thurber relates to Eliot that the fantastically disturbing thing about Pickman's art is the undisputed realism of it. There's no trace of the fanciful to be found in his technique. It's like a photograph of a demoniac frenzy happening before your eyes. He describes it as thorough, painstaking, and almost scientific levels of realism. Despite all the horrific qualities Pickman has displayed of himself through his art, Thurber can't help but admit that he was truly great. He notices a large camera on his table and it piques his interest. Pickman says he uses it to capture scenery images so he can reference them later as backgrounds for his own paintings. A photograph is just about as good as being there, he declared. Just as Thurber is taking in all the half-finished monstrous portraits leaning on the walls of Pickman's studio, Pickman pulls off the sheet of a massive canvas to reveal something that shocks Thurber to his core. He involuntarily screams in horror. It was a colossal and nameless blasphemy with glaring red eyes, and it held in bony claws a thing that had been a man, gnawing at the head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. Its position was a kind of crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. But damn it all, it wasn't even the fiendish subject that made it such an immortal fountainhead of all panic. Not that, nor the dog face with its pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, flat nose and drooling lips. It wasn't the scaly claws, nor the mold-caked body, nor the half-hooved feet. None of these, though any one of them might well have driven an excitable man to madness. It was the technique, Elliot, the cursed, the impious, the unnatural technique. As I am a living being, I never elsewhere saw the actual breath of life so fused into a canvas. The monster was there. It glared and gnawed and gnawed and glared, and I knew that only a suspension of nature's laws could ever let a man paint a thing like that without a model, 
without some glimpse of that netherworld which no mortal unsold to the fiend has ever had. As Thurber is slowly gathering his sanity back, he notices a crumpled photograph tacked to the edge of canvas where there was no paint and he absentmindedly untacks it to look at it when suddenly Pikmin starts up in shock. He was apparently listening closely for something when Thurber had screamed and he thinks he hears something now. Pikmin seems physically afraid of something as he draws his revolver. He says he'll be back and goes off to the other rooms to investigate. He can hear strange eerie sounds like squeals or squawking. He hears thuds and sounds of brick and wood grating on the ground. He hears muffled gibberish coming from Pikmin, then six loud bangs from the revolver. More squeals and squawks and then his door opens to Thurber's violent shock. But it's just Pikmin who informs him that they have big rats around the place and that his scream drew their attention. Yes, rats. After all this, Pikmin hurriedly sees Thurber out and on his way home. We cut back to the present with Thurber relating all this to Elliot, yet emphasizing that it wasn't the paintings or the strangeness of all that had happened there which made him drop contact with Pikmin. It was the next day. He reached in his coat pocket and realized he had crumpled the supposed scenery photograph when they were startled by the sound from the other room. He unfurled it to find it was not a photograph of plain scenery. It was the very cellar they had been in, and it was the giant ghoul he had painted gnawing on a dead man, except it was really there. Dun dun dun. Pikmin's seemingly demented fantastical horrors were copies of what he was witnessing in real life. What an interesting story. It has so many facets which you can approach it from, but let's tackle a few. There is an unavoidable similarity in the way Pikmin, or Lovecraft, thinks in the way I myself think. Quote, Yes, Thurber, I decided long ago that one must paint terror as well as beauty from life, so I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives. End quote. What is this podcast if not an exploration of both the beauty of orthodoxy and the terror of Lovecraft? I too see value in exploring both ends of the spectrum. Whether one is orthodox or not, a Lovecraft fan or not, we inevitably as human beings experience beauty and terror, and we are capable of being creators of either as well. It is a special endowment from God on us as human beings to be little creators ourselves. Because of his image inside, we have the capacity to make worlds, languages, sculptures, paintings, and music with the distinct honor of being able to reflect back to God in worship. When one rejects God, one can still create, because the image of God is never revoked, only distorted. Even through the wonderfully horrific and terrible fantasies Lovecraft was able to come up with out of a sense of divine absence, he still created beauty as well. Even in his objectively least impressive stories, just his prose and word phrasing alone is elegant and echoes of beauty. With Richard Upton Pickman as a character, he, like many young Orthodox, especially converts, feel as if the world he lives in is fake, artificial and disingenuous. The past is idyllic, even with its real horrors. Pickman seeks to bring that real terror back into the pretentious Boston life he is imprisoned in. Pickman, however, is a good example of a man who becomes consumed by his darkness. He states he believes one should display both beauty and terror, but gives in to terror alone. He lets it become his master, 
because while the terror he describes as being from an authentic past is hidden away, one can assume the true beauty too is hidden, yet he does not seek to bring it out as well. We of course could conclude that the whole reason he goes in this direction in the first place is because he is in fact a changeling, as depicted in his art. But for the pur purposes of this spiritual exploration, let's assume he was a man simply taken with darkness. I find the actions and ultimately the mission of Pikmin to be frightening. He is trying to expose others to the terror he sought out, knowing it would traumatize. He wants Thurber to scream in reaction to the lifelike imagery of death on canvas. Pikmin is increasingly isolated as a person and in the end cut off from all human contact. This is no longer about admiring the authenticity of the past, but rejecting his humanity and embracing death. In his new book, The Ethics of Beauty, Dr. Timothy Petitsas asserts that the orthodox approach to healing the soul from trauma is beauty first. He states, quote, Whereas Orthodox Christian theology and soul healing call us and encourage us to begin with beauty, it is obvious, once we think about it, that trauma has just the opposite effect. Trauma results from a very powerful encounter with ugliness, especially if that ugliness strikes us as a kind of revelation, disclosing us to the real truth about the world, end quote. Is this not the goal of Pikmin? to show us what real life was like through the depictions of the profane, the traumatic? In a fascinating section of his book called The Berserk State, Dr. Petitsas highlights the all-consuming power trauma can have on a person with Achilles in the Trojan War as an example. To begin with, the soldier will experience the shrinking of his moral horizon in positive terms. He would do anything for his brothers, those in his own unit. He is fighting for his buddy. He does not recognize that his deepening attachment to them may be a sign that his attachment to the rest of humanity, including his enemy, has weakened. But when this inner circle is violated, that is, when the hell of war results in one of them, particularly a best friend, dying, then the sphere of moral concern has become quite narrow indeed. The person may eventually lose all interpersonal connection, which culminates in the berserk state during which a traumatized person attempts to destroy everything around him in a godlike rage. In Achilles' case, he first withdraws from the army of the Greeks, but he remains attached to his company and to his friend Patroclus. When Patroclus is killed in the mix-up that follows, then Achilles' field of concern shrinks even more. Prior to these events, Achilles would defend or at least show compassion to the enemy prisoners that he took. But now, he just slays them, ten or twelve at a time, overcome with the lust for blood in this berserk state. This berserking is a kind of ecstasy, or rather, its parodic reversal. It is not communion with all men and with all things, but it is rather the final death of communion. Berserking is, we orthodox would recognize at once, the very opposite of that which saves us, communion with God and others in liturgy. War for the Berserker has become an anti-liturgy, and of course many soldiers experience this in some lesser degree. Dr. Petitsas wraps up the section by saying, But the Berserker, unlike the other soldiers, undergoes all of it in the service of annihilation of the self and the other. Pikmin is of course not inspired by war, or as far as we know, a war veteran, although it is very possible since Thurber himself was in World War I. But there can be no doubt that Pikmin witnesses real trauma, 
and he does so regularly, losing his connection with beauty and humanity, letting his anti-liturgy reveal its truth to him. He wants to spread this to the rest of the world, even though he is repeatedly rebuffed by his acquaintances in the art world. He even takes us to a meta level in his piece entitled Holmes, Lowell, and Longfellow Lie Buried in Mount Auburn. The three individuals mentioned by name were known by a few titles such as the Fireside Poets or Schoolroom Poets or Household Poets. They were popular writers of New England in the 19th century and known for works which valued and stressed domesticity and good morals above all else. Pickman's piece shows a group of devilish ghouls engaged in raucous laughter while one of them reads their obituary aloud. This is ugliness mocking the good. It is Pickman's feeling about the beautiful. We would be remiss if we believed we could not become like Pickman. No one can help being traumatized, but those seeking healing must run to beauty, engaging in true liturgy with their fellow man. Do not let the ugliness and terror of trauma overtake and consume you, or you will become what you worship, as Pickman eventually does. Thank you to listener Steve L. for requesting this story. I had a lot of fun rereading it and exploring it for the show. If there are other Lovecraft stories you would want to hear featured on this podcast, please send me a message via the Christ and Cthulhu Instagram page. I love suggestions. The music for this podcast was provided by Graham Plowman and Cryochamber. Chamber. You can find Graham Plowman's work on iTunes, YouTube, and GrahamPlowman.com. And for Cryochamber, Chamber, you can find them on iTunes, YouTube, Bandcamp, and Facebook by searching Cryochamber Chamber Music. I've been your host, C.O. Fique, and until next time, remember, that is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. <laughs>